Hello and welcome to the Sheffield Institute for International Development podcast. Today, Professor Alistair McGregor joins me to discuss his research centred on well-being methods in development policy and practice. Hello, Alistair. Hello, Lucia. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you. How do you describe well-being and how should it be socially understood? Well-being is something which we all aspire to. And it's a word that's often used, but often not well defined. In order to use it in my research, I've drawn on a range of different foundational works. And I have worked with a multidimensional idea about well-being, which if we put it very simply is that we need to have things that we require for a good life. We need to be able to do things that we need for a good life. And we need to be able to feel good about both the things that we have and the things that we're able to do. So it's multidimensional. It deals with the interplay between the material aspects of well-being, the relational aspects of well-being, and the psychological aspects of well-being. What are some of the factors that contribute to a person's overall well-being? Okay, so you take all of those three, and most often, and in my work, which is focused on poverty, you can look at the simple fact that if you don't have enough to eat, then it is unlikely that you're experiencing well-being. But if we take it into those other dimensions, then if we are not able to do the things that we think are important for our lives, then that equally is a denial of our well-being. And if you take it into that third psychological dimension, if we are unhappy, um, we feel diminished, we feel that we're engaged in undignified activities, then also on that psychological dimension, we can't talk about well-being. And the thing is that the three are related. So if people are struggling for food, then it may be that they have to do things that they would not otherwise choose to do. And they may feel particularly diminished by the things that they have to do or their experience in life. So it's the relationship between these material, relational and psychological dimensions that's important. Can you explain the link between well-being and social policy? Well, in a sense, there's an argument that the heart of social policy, the beginning of social policy, was about well-being, was about making sure that people fared well, welfare. So it, in that sense, and there's a, there's a revival of that argument, that social policy should be concerned with uh, promoting well-being. Historically, however, if we look at what's happened to social policy, it's become very focused on a rather narrow notion of welfare in which we tend to talk about poverty in material terms. And it's only laterally that we begin to get on to thinking about social policy dealing with issues such as social exclusion or dealing with issues of mental health or depression. So in that sense, the revival of a focus on well-being and this multidimensional notion of well-being affords social policy an opportunity to reconnect with a broader conception of what it is that we need to be well in our societies. So how do you accurately measure the well-being of people within a particular community? Well, there's quite a lot of work being done. We've developed very sophisticated measures of material well-being so if we're looking at that dimension then we can talk about what is it that people have and don't have so do they have housing of a particular standard do they have enough food if we talk about the relational aspect we can also get measures of relational well-being so the social capital literature has for a long time wrestled with this so 
are people engaged in social relationships with kin, with neighbours, with family and so on and so forth. And on the psychological dimension, there are there's a long history, particularly in social psychology, of measuring the subjective or the, the psychological aspects of well-being. In my work, the argument is no one of those in itself will tell you about a person's well-being. And what is important then is to look at the relationships between what do we find in terms of the measurements of material well-being, relational well-being, and what do we find in terms of psychological well-being. Sometimes they run together, but sometimes people can be doing well materially but very badly on the other dimensions. Equally, people can be doing well in the other dimensions but still be relatively materially impoverished. So how do these results of well-being vary from country to country and from society to society? Well, The fundamental thing for me is, because of my particular focus on poverty and inequality, I've been interested in where people are failing to achieve well-being. Poverty exists in all our societies, from the wealthiest to the poorest. But the ways that that poverty is actually manifest in different societies is quite different. Or put it in the terms that I would want to put it, the way that people fail to achieve well-being is manifest differently. So clearly when you are in a relatively resource poor country where you've got people dependent on maybe low level, low productivity agriculture or low level labouring jobs, then material poverty becomes a significant thing. Housing poverty, you know, shelter poverty, these things are very significant. But actually it would be wrong to think of those as the only aspects of poor countries. We find also that because of this interaction. There are many different forms of relational poverty. So women are particularly disadvantaged in particular societies and cultures. It may be that different ethnicities are disadvantaged or excluded in different societies. And on the psychological side, then there is a sense in which the ability to judge whether we're doing well depends very much upon the culture of the society. So what is it that we need to think we're achieving to be doing well? So you get conundrums where you've got people who are living in relatively difficult material conditions who will nevertheless be quite um, resilient in terms of psychological well-being. But equally in our developed, rich societies, whether in the UK or Europe or the US, you can get people who got actually doing very well materially, but who feel they're doing very badly to the extent that they may actually suffer some forms of mental ill health or a sense of mental failure in terms of well-being. So I think there's no glib categorizations, but clearly in resource-poor countries, you'll get a lot more hard and destructive material well-being failure. In developed countries, you'll get failures at the top end of the scale in terms of people's psychological sense of well-being. But actually, in both sets of societies you get a mixture. Have you come across any society which has maybe lacked in material well-being but achieved great levels of social and psychological well-being? Can you give an example? So the long and the short of it is yes I have and where this comes from for me was I did my PhD fieldwork in Bangladesh and I lived in a village in Bangladesh and there's a tremendous amount of material hardship But when you live in that village, you understand actually people here have got a strong sense of well-being and what it is to try and live well, despite all the the challenges they face. So in that sense, you know, there are other things in life. There's music, there's 
humour and all of these things are important. They can't just be dismissed as, oh, it's false consciousness. This is poor people pretending they're happy. That's not quite capturing the picture. So there are a lot of things that make people's lives worth living despite material hardships that we ought to think carefully about as societies develop. Because it's very easy to destroy community feeling, um, relationships between people that are important for well-being as societies become richer and become more developed. What are some of the factors that can perhaps hinder or cause inaccurate results when exploring the meaning and dynamics of well-being? Well, we can talk about that certainly in terms of measurements of psychological well-being. The way that my work goes, the methodology, you move to subjective data. You talk to people about, well, what's important for your well-being and how satisfied are you? with how you're doing. And there's always the risk that the responses you're going to get are affected by events. Your only protection against that is you try and do large enough numbers that you perhaps rule out events. But I think one of the myths that abound in the well-being literature is somehow that our objective measures of well-being are more reliable. You know, data comes from somewhere, numbers come from somewhere. You're talking to people about things you know, the issue of trying to ask people, well, what's your income? That's an incredibly difficult question. And yet we objectify that data and say, well, the income level is this and that's objective and the subjective stuff, that's different. So actually there are problems in terms of all forms of data that we need to be conscious of and work around, as it were, either in terms of ensuring you've got big enough samples, ensuring that you've thought carefully about the structure of questionnaires or survey instruments that you're using. So there are things that we can do to try and minimise some of that, but we've still got to accept that actually, in the end, all these forms of data are subject to problems and inaccuracies. How forthcoming are people when discussing their subjective experiences? Obviously, if you go in cold, then it's very difficult because often you're asking people about things that are quite intimate to themselves. So I think this is one of the problems of just injecting subjective well-being questions into standard survey instruments. In my view, the best results come from situations where you've established some kind of relationship with people. There's an element which they understand what you're doing. There's an element of kind of trust in the whole process. And when you do that, then you can generate quite significant discussions about well-being. So one part of the methodology that we use is you will do focus groups, if possible and if it's suitable, in communities, and you'll get people discussing, well, what does it mean to live well in this community? You know, what's required? And you can get some very fruitful and useful discussions. Is it fair to say that it's almost impossible to have a reliable universal measurement system of well-being due to geographic and development considerations? Well, that's the million dollar question, because we do want to be able to compare or say that there's something universal about human well-being. And at an abstract level, yes, I think there is. So in that article, Measuring Well-Being, what I have suggested is that we need to be able to move from an abstract notion which is universal into society specific versions and thus we'd be talking about the same categories of things so shelter is the same in all shelter is universal we all need it 
But the kind of shelter we need is different in different societies. So the discussion you would have about what's needed for well-being in terms of different items would be different. So it's this issue of finding how to both talk about it universally, but nevertheless not destroy the significance for particular societies and places. Can you give us some idea of how different countries prioritise different aspects of their lives with regard to well-being, for example, in a developed country compared to a not-so-developed country? I'm not sure I've actually thought that through too much. But, you know, when we talked earlier about the difference between different societal contexts, it's clear that in some developed society contexts, you just can't get by without money, so you need income. Income will feature highly, but it will feature highly in all societies. But I think in other societies, in less materially wealthy societies, then you would get strong emphasis on some of the things that perhaps money overshadows in more developed societies. So about neighbourliness, about social connections, about um, religion's a thing that comes up quite a lot in some societies. You know, so what's important? Well, it's important for me to be able to practice my religion, but also to be the kind of person that my religion would want me to be. Can you describe the importance of the poorest people in society participating in well-being methods? Is their contribution actually playing a part in influencing development practice at a grassroots level? One of the starting points for my work on well-being was what's called the participation literature. Um, the work of Robert Chambers at uh, the Institute of Development Studies at Sussex, who basically was pointing out the extent to which poorer people were often ignored and voiceless and unheard. People would speak on their behalf um, or experts would explain their circumstances. The essence of this is that actually we should understand what it is that poor people regard as important for their well-being, how they are faring on these things. And in that way, it's important that policymakers hear from people who are poor rather than people who are speaking on behalf of people who are poor. So the potential of this method is precisely to try and create a connection between poor people and the people who are responsible for making policy for them. Have you found that the poorest people who have contributed, have they seen results in improved standards of living and experienced changes to their perceived notions of well-being? It's difficult to actually follow that through in the research. One of the most significant places that that happened was work we were doing in Zambia, where we did, because we were working for a development agency, we, we did complete the circle. So we took the findings back to the community and back to policymakers. And the workshops that we held in Zambia were actually a huge success because it turned round the priorities for the policymakers. So poor people said, the people in the workshop that had participated said, well, you know, this is a good reflection of what we actually think is important here. But it wasn't what the policymakers had been thinking had been important. So there was a kind of sense of coming together. So that happened in Zambia. We've been doing some work in slums in India and Bangladesh with In India Slum Dwellers International. And they as an organisation have actually found it very useful because they've found it helps them find out what their members actually think is important for their well-being and then enables them to use that in engagement with policymakers in cities. Part of the point of the article is to say this is the kind of thing we should be systematising in development policy and practice.
this shouldn't just be random you know participatory accounts but actually can you introduce a methodology that systematically enables poor people's voices to be heard and to engage with policy processes so is that likely to be rolled out well there's a lot of enthusiasm for well-being so you can find well-being very strongly underpins for example the new sustainable development goals there's a lot of enthusiasm for it Equally, there's a lot of bureaucratic resistance to it. It seems that it would require what people regard as rather expensive data collecting systems. We've already got expensive data system collection regimes. It's just they don't collect any good data. That's the problem. So we spend the money, but they're not actually dealing with the stuff that matters to people. There's also a political issue, of course, because what this does is it makes poverty political because it does reveal whose priorities have prevailed, whose voices have been heard, what happens when you introduce the voices of others into the system. It makes the politics of poverty much more transparent. And that's a good thing, isn't it? It's a very good thing. If we say we're about poverty reduction and you realise there are significant differences and obstacles to some people's poverty being overcome, then that should be a good thing. Have you seen levels of poverty being reduced over your time researching this? No. Most of my work has been trying to persuade organisations and agencies who are actually doing development work to pick this up. I've not been involved in large-scale work where an organisation or a government has taken up and said, right, well, we're going to change the way that we think on this. We're still at fairly early days in the wellbeing work. A lot of people think it's a very good idea. There's a lot of experimentation with different approaches to measurement, but we've yet to see a systematic application of it in policy where you'd say, well, and policy has changed because of this, and even more, it's actually made a difference to people's lives. I think this is one of the most exciting and interesting areas of um, international development. There's quite a lot of resistance in international development to it, because people are invested in their own paradigms and regimes. So it's not just the bureaucrats that are against it, academics have got a role to play. I would strongly urge other academics to look at it very carefully, get involved, don't dismiss it. You know, The psychological thing tends to frighten people away. It's not apolitical, it's not about happiness. So for other academics who think they're engaged in development to actually take a good look at it and to consider what it can do and how it works for their research. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.